So, good morning. Allow me to confess that uh, for many years, the arrival of Advent, this period of four weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus and our celebration of it, was a signal to me to batten down the hatches, put my head down, and just keep going till, let's say, the 27th of December. It marked the beginning of a nightmare season for me, where there was simply too much to do and too little time in which to do it. This feeling was hugely exacerbated by the fact that Toby and I had two of our three daughters in December. One on the 13th, and yes, it was Friday, and the second on Christmas Eve. Mind you, if number two had arrived when she was supposed to, on the 4th of January, we wouldn't have this problem. (laughs) And nearly 35 years on, I believe I am beginning to face and even deal with my resentment. (laughs) You'll be pleased to know that our third arrived in July. The concept of family planning finally hitting home, apparently. (laughs) December is a challenging time for many of us, however much we love Christmas and all that goes with it. If you're a parent of a primary school-aged child, or even of a child of any age, I simply can't remember, there's the Christmas fair, the Christmas concert, and, of course, one of the greatest sources of entertainment ever devised, the Christmas nativity play. On top of that, and all the present buying, food buying, Christmas card writing, and worrying about January's credit card bill, we had children's parties. (laughs) I hate children's parties. (laughs) I did quite enjoy them as a child, so long as I won something, obviously, but as a parent, When, finally, we could keep them happy by taking them to see a film and eat pizza in a Frankie and Benny's with their friends, I cannot tell you how grateful I was to the Lord. (laughs) Although celebrating Advent has obviously been done for centuries in the Church Universal, I can honestly say that the importance of it and the sheer joy of it have only really begun to dawn on me relatively recently. I want to recommend a book. Cue for a picture. Yay, there we go. Brilliantly taken by me on my phone yesterday. It is called Haphazard by Starlight, and it is a collection of poems put together by a woman called Janet Morley. She also comments on each poem superbly well, in my opinion. Some of the poems are specifically Christian in content, and some are not, but all of them speak in some way to Advent and aspects of Advent. Toby and I took to reading one a day together about three or four years ago. It starts on the 1st of December and finishes at Epiphany on the 6th of January. And if you do choose to look at it, you will get to read some sublime writing and, I hope, be inspired to consider more closely some of the themes of Advent. Waiting, hoping, loving, and finding joy and peace. Joy and peace are yet to come in this brief Advent series. I want to talk about love today. Last week, Phil talked about hope, brilliantly in my opinion, although I do find it challenging ever to have to say nice things about Phil. (laughs) Can I just clarify at this point? 
For those of you who may not have been around KVE long enough to know, Phil and Fiona have been close friends and close neighbours for the best part of 20 years, and I would have it no other way. If you haven't heard his insightful, challenging, and of course, funny talk, do listen online. You cannot but learn something. I'm basing today's talk on two short verses, very well known to most Christians and probably to people of other faiths and none too. They are John 15, 12, and 13. My command is this, says Jesus, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I want to talk today about three aspects of love which Jesus and those around him model to us everyday, ordinary people, to quote Phil and Morig. Those of sacrifice, suffering, and satisfaction. I'm not entirely happy with the word satisfaction, to be honest, but it begins with an S and is pleasingly alliterative, so, <laughs> so it'll do. I've absolutely loved going through the first two chapters of Luke in depth, as we have been doing before actually even getting to Advent, when these chapters are usually and rather briefly addressed. Looking at the concept of sacrifice first, let's just recap on the sacrifices we see in these two chapters. Mary, a teenage girl who is given the honour by God of bearing his only son, Jesus, but who is as yet, although betrothed, unmarried. And yet she said yes to God. Imagine the salacious gossip she must have been subjected to. Joseph, running the gauntlet of the finger-wagging, oh, you old dog, you jumped the gun, did you? Knowing full well he didn't, and as far as we know from Luke, just taking it on the chin. We do get more of an insight into how he dealt with things in the first chapter of Matthew, verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What a decent man. Even before he knew from the Lord's angel that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Joseph was still anxious to make as little fuss as possible and to spare Mary public disgrace. He'd have been well within his rights to swan off and abandon her to her fate, but he didn't. He said yes to God. Zechariah, on hearing that his beyond childbearing year's wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a child, doesn't say no exactly. He just asks how he can be sure and is struck temporarily dumb for expressing what most of us would think of as quite reasonable scepticism. He didn't say an immediate yes at first, but he did learn his lesson and confirms Elizabeth's claim, which nobody will countenance initially, that their son will be called John, not Zechariah, as everybody expects. He too said yes to God. 
I suspect I've made the mistake in the past of thinking that in order for something to qualify as a sacrifice, it has to be something really huge. A soldier taking a bullet for his friend in combat. Jesus dying on the cross, obviously, or jumping in front of a car to save a child. Literally, in some cases, laying down your life. I also suspect that very few of us will ever be called on to make that sort of sacrifice. All of us, however, will be asked to give up what Oswald Chambers called our claim to our right to ourselves. All of us are called to the sacrifice of obedience. Earlier in the book of John in chapter 13, we read of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In his typically passionate way, Peter initially takes enormous exception to having his feet washed by his Lord. No, he says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. He sees himself as utterly unworthy to be on the receiving end of such ministrations from Jesus. So Jesus puts him straight. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Whereupon Peter then goes to the opposite extreme. Well, wash all of me then, he says. And Jesus patiently explains why actually he's not going to do that. Later, Jesus asks his disciples if they have understood what he has done for them. A deafening silence almost certainly ensued. The foot washing thing was bizarre for them. But we know, don't we, that Jesus washing his disciples' feet is a metaphor for servant-heartedness. You call me teacher and Lord, Jesus says in verse 13, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The example Jesus sets here, I think, is twofold. He models servant leadership on the one hand and obedience to God's call on the other, and neither is as yet clear to his disciples. I doubt it would have been to us either if we'd been there. There is so much essential stuff to be said about servant leadership, but sadly we simply don't have the time, so we'll stick to obedience for now. It's certainly enough to be going on with. Later still, telling Peter that he can't go with him to where he, Jesus, is going, Peter stamps his foot and asks, why not? I will lay down my life for you, he says, to which Jesus in verse 38 answers, will you really lay down your life for me? The truth is that before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Like Peter, we human beings sometimes love a grand gesture. Remember the ear-cutting-off incident in the Garden of Gethsemane. Guess who did that? I remember one of our girls coming back from several months serving with YWAM, a Christian organization called Youth with a Mission, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the acronym, and telling me that one of her friends wanted to be martyred for his faith. In his book, My Utmost for His Highest, the above-mentioned Oswald Chambers wrote this, it is inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we don't. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things, to be holy in mean streets among mean people, and this is not learnt in five minutes. The sacrifice is shown to us in the first two chapters of Luke, and of course Jesus is willingly going to the cross, 
is the sacrifice of obedience. And if you think that obedience isn't really that much of a sacrifice, then you have never had your will thwarted by those in rightful authority over you. Your parents, for example, or your teachers. And perhaps we need to reconsider the enormity of the sacrifice required of Jesus. Even he struggled to be obedient over that. In Luke 22, verse 42, we read, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Like it or not, obedience to rightful authority, and I cannot stress the word rightful enough, is a strong component of love. Suffering. It is impossible to love at all, whether it is another person, our pet hamster, or to love football, without opening ourselves up to the possibility of suffering. Think Germany at the moment in the World Cup, or out of it, rather. <laughs> Most of us will have had the experience of, of feeling passionately attached to someone who doesn't reciprocate our feelings. I first fell in love with Colin at the age of four. He was 25. <laughs> I resolved to marry him, whether he liked it or not, but ultimately had to settle for being his bridesmaid, which was fine, actually. I was perfectly happy with that because I got to wear a pretty blue dress instead of the boring white one that his wife seemed to want to wear. So, <laughs> all good. I'm not making light of how painful unrequited love can be, nor how very painful it can be for a relationship to end when we absolutely didn't want it to. It hurts a lot. So it doesn't take parenthood to understand suffering. Many of us will be perfectly well acquainted with suffering without being parents. The love we feel towards our parents, our siblings, our life partners and friends is quite as profound as the love parents feel for their children. Different, certainly, but no less heartfelt. But there is a dimension to parental love which is somehow over and above, to do, I think, with the responsibility for and particularly protection of our children. Elizabeth Stone, a prominent American educator in the 20th century, wrote this, making the decision to have a child, it's momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. And in his novel, Where Do Comedians Go When They Die, great title, Milton Jones writes about the birth of his protagonist's first child. Our family dynamic is about to change forever, and we don't know how. I'm about to meet a stranger who's going to leap into my top five people of all time. Now you don't see them, then you do. In a few hours, I'll be prepared to kill or die for them. Parental love is fierce and visceral. In Luke 2, Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own soul, and as we know, it does. Again, though, as we saw earlier with the idea of huge sacrifice, suffering is not confined to the acute agony we feel at the loss of a child. That, again, is something most of us will not experience. No parent expects to survive their child, but many, too many, like Mary, do. 
Scripture doesn't tell us if Elizabeth and Zechariah lived long enough to learn of their son John's murder, but I rather hope they didn't. Parenthood makes you very, very vulnerable. But actually, daring to love at all makes you vulnerable. In verse 12 of John 15, as we've seen, Jesus says to his disciples, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now there's a high calling, if ever I saw one. And note, it's a command, not a suggestion. How does that work? How do we love on command? How am I supposed to love, I don't know, Alistair, for example? Surely I have to like him first. (laughs) Well, no. Love, Jesus goes on to say, means laying down your life for your friends. How do we do that? We serve their children in KV Kids. We make coffee for them. We pray for them. We cook for them. We rejoice with them and we weep with them. We listen to them. And perhaps most challenging is remembering that, as John Wimber used to say, your brother or sister in Christ is never your enemy, even the brother or sister you can't stand. And if you've never met one of those, I'm genuinely delighted for you. So yeah, (laughs) I just have met one. (laughs) How do we respond, for example, to those few who say and always have said that Vineyard is not a real church? We respond by turning the other cheek, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That does not mean letting people trample all over us, but it does mean enduring the slap, which, by the way, is not simple physical violence, but another of those metaphors which are bound in Scripture, this time a metaphor for any insult or offence. He calls on us to suck it up and not to retaliate. If that doesn't go against basic instinct, I don't know what does. But Christians are called to be counter-cultural, and this is one of the ways in which we do it. It isn't easy but we do it because Jesus tells us to. Sacrifice and suffering are part and parcel of loving. And finally, the satisfaction of love. Satisfaction really doesn't cut it, does it? How about the sheer, sparkling, scintillating splendor of love? Why use only one word when you can use four? It would be a miserable thing indeed if we only talked about love in terms of the sacrifices it entails and the suffering it can bring. Loving someone can be the most joy-giving, life-changing experience we will ever have. We are created for relationship with God and with others. I have a very dear friend now in her 70s who never married, has no children, whose parents are long gone, and whose two siblings, one of them a sister to whom she was very close, have predeceased her. Her dearest friends have very recently emigrated to the States. Strictly speaking, she's on her own. She could be bitter and resentful. She is anything but. When Toby and I moved up here in 2004, she wrote us a card in which she said that she knew she would never be lonely because God had given her friends like us. Our family adore her, as do many other families. She has nephews and nieces and great-nephews and great-nieces coming out of her ears, 
to whose life she is absolutely key and to whom she is devoted. I have never presumed to ask her if her life has panned out as she hoped and expected when she was a young woman, but my guess would be that it hasn't. What I think, though, is that rather than lament her lot, she has chosen to and knows how to love, and she does it brilliantly and unstintingly. She has understood John 15, verses 12 and 13, fully, and has lived her life by them, completely, and for a very long time. She has laid down her life for her friends and her family, and she reaps what she sows in abundance, because that's what God does for us when we do what he asks us to do. 1 John 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. God's unconditional love for each one of us who say yes to him is a gift. His gift of love to us enables us to love in our turn. We cannot love without sacrifice of ourselves sometimes and of our will often. We cannot love without suffering. It simply isn't an option. It's the reverse side of the love coin. But we can love because love is not just a feeling. It's a decision. And God has equipped us to love as he first loved us. So let's just go with it. Let's trust him in this as in everything else. I want to end with one of the poems, just because I can, from the book Haphazard by Starlight, which I mentioned at the outset. It's called BCAD, Before Christ and Anna Domini, and it's by UA Fanthorpe, and I've asked Ruth to read it for us. So come on down, Ruth. BCAD. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. Shall we stand? Father God, I want to thank you so much for the great gift of love to which, which you've given to each one of us. Thank you for your unconditional love, Lord. Thank you that there is not a thing we can do that will make you love us any more than you do now or love us any less than you do now. We are so grateful, Father God, for your love and for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.